0: Hello and welcome to Intelligence Talks. I'm your host, Senior Residential Analyst, Anna Ward. Today we'll be talking about the sustainability agenda, looking at the key findings from our active capital report and speaking to a leader in the field, Richard Walker, Managing Director of Iceland Foods. Richard has been setting an example across both the retail sector, with Iceland having just published its own plastic footprint and called on other grocery chains to do the same, and property. I speak to both Richard and Theo Michel, both co-founders of Bywater Properties, about the property sector's efforts to reduce its carbon footprint. But first I'll be catching up with Knight Frank commercial research partner Victoria Ormond. Victoria contributed to our Active Capital Report which came out last week and one of its key themes is sustainability. So hi Victoria, thanks for joining us. The Active Capital Report obviously covers a whole range of cities and London comes up as a top city for sustainable buildings. Can you just tell us a bit about why London made it as a top-ranked city?
1: London is one of the top cities globally. It has over 3,000 green-rated buildings in order to actually get to that number, we've collected information on over 120,000 green rated buildings around the world and over 190,000 projects. And actually, in a sense, it makes sense that London is one of the greenest cities because actually, Briam, which is one of the world's leading international certifications for green buildings was actually developed out of the Watford-based building research establishment, which was first formed in 1990. So the UK has for a long time been a forerunner when thinking about this. So London has over 3,000 green-rated buildings, but actually there's a big pool of buildings which were completed before the year 2000. It's about 65% of London's total commercial building stock. And so actually there's a lot more opportunities to bring those in line with carbon reduction targets. To give an example of a specific building that is going to be coming to fruition in London, we had a webinar recently with Edge Technologies, and they're developing London's most sustainable tall building, Edge London Bridge. And the conversation there was really interesting, actually, because they talked about some of the interplays and tensions between different elements of ESG for example, sustainability versus wellness. But they also talked about combining the ideas of operational carbon and embodied carbon as well, which is a really important conversation.
0: And how does London compare to other cities and which other cities would you say would stand out in your ranking?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, There's a big change at the moment. Sustainability, that is is something that's really, really key. And it's something that's not just focused in Europe or the US. There are a lot of cities which are increasing the number of green buildings in the US, including New York, including Washington, even including places like Houston, which are traditionally built around the oil industry, but also over in Asia. For example, Singapore, now they have minimum green rating standards for new developments and also say in abu dhabi out in the middle east similarly they have minimum green criteria for new buildings so there's multiple cities right around the world which are also well known or increasing in terms of the number of green buildings <laughs> So you've heard from Victoria on the cities
0: that score the highest when it comes to sustainability and the impact of COVID on the way developers and governments will prioritise environmental efforts going forward. I'm now going to talk to Richard and Theo, who were among the first developers in London to lead the way on net zero carbon offices. Richard is better known for running British supermarket chain Iceland, which was founded by his father, Sir Malcolm Walker, in 1970. But he has in fact been involved in property since the early 2000s. He has chaired Bywater since he teamed up with fellow former JLL graduate trainee Theo Michelle in 2006. So the last time all of us met, in fact, was when I was a journalist at EG back in November, which obviously seems worlds away now. But you've since got planning for your office development in Lambeth, which I, I then visited. So the former Costa Coffee roastery and all of that despite the ongoing pandemic. So, I mean, what else has changed and how has COVID influenced your decision making since then? Uh,
2: well, in terms of that scheme itself, the Paradise, as as we're now calling that project, that has moved through the, the planning system, as, as you say, we're just closing off the final stage of the Section 106. And we've had some really positive early reception for that timber frame building from both the occupier market, but also the finance market. And that's largely driven by the sustainability and the carbon credentials on that scheme being being so strong. So at the moment we're continuing to to work on that project with a anticipated delivery date of the end of 2022, and there's not been any really significant impact I would say for that particular project as a result of the pandemic. I mean, largely we feel it's you know it's already relatively well positioned because of its healthy building status, its proximity to the park, fresh air, mixed mode ventilation, and so on, and above all, you know, simple things like the fact that it is a walkable. Walkable building. It's ground plus five stories. We you know we are not constrained by lifting capacity. So, in terms of how has that affected that the the pandemic affected that particular project, I would say you know not significant at this stage. In fact, if anything, it's highlighted the topics that that are central to that project as being so so relevant. More wider than that, I think you know there has been an, an impact inevitably. If anything, it is actually caused us to refocus our attention more, if anything, on central London and to uh, you know accelerate our focus on sustainability and healthy building agendas.
0: Interesting you mentioned central London. Is that because your long-term view is that we'll be returning to work in central offices going forwards?
2: It is. I mean, I think it's still very early, really, to, to assess the long-term impact of COVID. I and mean, I think, to some extent, you can look at what appears to be the beginnings of a second second wave so-called that's happening at the moment in the country, you know, it's to some extent a reflective of the fact that we actually return very quickly to old, learned, ingrained behaviours when when we have a chance. Now, how that pans forward into how we use office buildings is really yet to be seen in the long term, I think. But our feeling it's certainly in relation to the central London market is that actually people still need to access a very central, easily accessible location, although a kind of more peripheral, urban, or even semi-rural location sounds idyllic, and no doubt that might help a commute pattern for some people. It makes it considerably worse for others unless you're a new entrant into the market or hiring a very, very localised labour pool. So actually, you know, our feeling is long-term central London is still attractive, and there is still a predominant need and a want for people to congregate collaboratively in, a, in an office space. So, you know, f- for us, it's more about how the kind of micro impacts of that uh, of the pandemic will affect long term office design. But I, th- I think it will take some time before that really pans out.
3: Actually, to add to that, so our head office here in North Wales, we've got about 750 people. And of course, many of those have been working from home through the pandemic. Although we're encouraging those that can come back to work to do so now, because we found that without face-to-face contacts, engagement does does go down and it does fall. And as Theo says, I think it's probably still too early to call in terms of how the pandemic's destined to, to change things. And but you know, for some with experience and desks and gardens at home, I think being away from the office during lockdown imposed no hardship. But for others, combined to a small flat or trying to work with a laptop balanced on an ironing board or whatever, you know, it was, it was a little short of a nightmare. So I, I don't think it is binary and undoubtedly the, the way we work will change, but there will always be a need for office space and co-working because that sort of human interaction is is so important to the sort of creative juices of any industry.
0: Yeah, no, certainly I couldn't agree more with that. The other thing, Richard, that you've spoken recently quite a lot about, of course, is Iceland publishing its own plastic footprint and you've called on other grocery chains to do the same. To take that to the property sector, what's your opinion currently on the carbon footprint of the retail versus property? And do you think that the, I mean, I guess it could be quite early, but do you think the property industry should be doing something similar in terms of publishing a plastic footprint?
3: That's a good idea. <laughs> I, mean, you know, I think in... In many ways, because retail is, uh, well, it's on the high street, so it's visible. You know, we've got the shop windows and therefore we're an easy target to point fingers at. And quite rightly too, you know, if you look at things like food waste, if, if that were a country, it would be the third biggest carbon emitter in, in the world. And of course, plastic as well. And as you know, we, we've made huge efforts to try and reduce our, our plastic footprint. And, and yeah, we took this very disruptive approach, which was to tell the truth and no other supermarket's done that yet because the truth is horrific. And we fully disclosed all of our primary, secondary and tertiary plastic all the way up our supply chains. And it equated to 32,000 tonnes, which is 1.8 billion pieces of plastic a year. And we're only 2.5% of the market. So when you scale that up, you get a sense of just how horrific it is. I think the property sector is obviously not so much in the public eye in that way. But of course, the built environment accounts for something like 40% of all greenhouse gas emissions. So it's absolutely one of the main culprits, but it's also an enormous opportunity. And when you look at prioritising a green economic recovery following this pandemic, and potentially, hopefully, as being at a watershed moment, I think every industry needs to look in on itself and, and see what it can do to embrace, you know, smart, lower carbon technologies that ultimately will increase, increase efficiency and productivity and. Offer new employment opportunities across the country.
2: I mean, I think I'd agree with absolutely everything that, that Richard said. And the one thing that really stands out for me, and in many ways, is, is the aspect that Richard's been such a, a powerful leader on, is, is his point about transparency and openness and, and telling the truth. And I think there's a there's a really interesting theme for the property sector there around making sure that we take an open source mentality to the challenges that we face. And there are, you know, there are various things, for example, in terms of the way that we measure carbon and the carbon content of buildings that there are no necessarily hard and fast ways of measuring it. But laying open on the table, you know, what we have done with one particular project, for example, the, the Paradise Scheme, in terms of taking a much more open source approach in the property sector, I think that's that's really important. And to share learnings, this is not about competing with one another necessarily. It's looking at how each of us are trying to do the best we can in the circumstances of, a, of an individual project and sharing that learning collaboratively and trying to address this enormous climate challenge that we face together.
3: Yeah, totally. If you look at the retail industry, it's, it's one of the most cutthroat in the world. And normally we, wanna, we wake up and, and want to try and kill each other. But, you know, through COVID, it really saw the industry standing shoulder to shoulder and, and collaborating as we've never done before. To help feed the nation. And I think climate change, biodiversity loss, all of these big existential issues that we face, you know, that takes the same level of collaboration. And that should be embraced by the property industry as well, because obviously no one player can can solve this on their own. There's an interesting point actually I was going to make. If you look at, like, you know, obviously the urgency of the crisis, we've got the IPCC saying we've got 10 years left to, to save ourselves. If you look at the bailout packages and and kind of fiscal policies that governments around the world are implementing now over the next year, two years, that's got to be concurrent with all of these positive environmental goals. So, in effect, that 10-year window is actually reduced down to 18 months because what we do over the next 18 months will affect the next 10 years.
2: Yes, Yeah, yeah, that's a really worrying point, isn't it? That sudden kind of rush to rush to growth post COVID, is
3: yeah,
2: you know, and it, and if
3: as you say they revert to type and just prop up old carbon-intensive industries, like, I think, I think we're in trouble. Yeah, is it true that timber frame buildings are harder to get more energy efficient in terms of carbon and use?
2: Yeah, so my understanding on this, just based on the Paradise project at Costa, is. Had we been building that in steel and concrete, we could have driven a little more efficiency into our, our M&E and therefore had a slightly more efficient M&E system. Right. Uh, however, That's the balance, um, isn't it? Well, well, the point is, it's never in balance. You know, If you were purely focused on your carbon in use, we could have got that lower building in steel and concrete. But, you know, in terms of the balance, you know, and this is this whole point about looking at it on a whole life basis, it never balances up, you know, the timber in that building, when you start looking at it in a whole life way, always outweighs that marginal gain in terms of the M&E efficiency by miles.
0: What would be good to hear is just some examples of the sustainability initiatives you're looking to achieve or run with, for example, your project in Lambeth and um, later in Peckham as well and going beyond that.
2: In relation to the Lambeth project, Paradise, the overwhelming ambition there was to make a really, really significant impact in the carbon sphere. Sustainability, sustainable building offices is a hugely broad broad category, but you know we chose early on to focus very specifically on carbon and probably to take a, a harder way of approaching and measuring carbon than, than many do. So to look at a whole life, Basis, not just carbon in use, but carbon in the embodied carbon in the in the construction process, which, you know, as we said before, has thrown out some really startling results. So we're at 268 kilos of carbon per meter squared delivered as against the REBA's 2030 challenge of 500 kilos. We're way ahead of that. And when you start factoring in sequestration, which again is, you know, is one of these points around taking a sort of open source approach, it's not an approach that everybody necessarily would subscribe to, that takes you into negative figures. So what we're looking to do is take learnings from that project in Lambeth. We have another site in Southwark, in Peckham, where we'll be planning on bringing forward another workspace building again timber frame and
0: is that the key then is the timber material and is that absolutely essential if we kind of consider the current landscape in london of glass and steel and so on i mean is is timber the way forward or are there other options
2: it's a really interesting balance between the operational efficiency and the construction efficiency if you like in in carbon terms were we to have built our paradise scheme out of concrete and steel we probably could actually make marginal efficiency gains in terms of the ME and the therefore the carbon footprint in use, but those are outweighed enormously by taking this timber frame approach because of the embodied timber in construction. So to answer your question simply, is it all about timber? Well, in, in that instance, yes. You know, it, it's using that construction methodology that's so dramatically changes the the footprint of the building. And in relation to the conversation we had earlier as well about uh, Edge London and the the Night Frank podcast earlier earlier this week. So their their scheme is terrific and it's you know really really exciting what they're trying to achieve there. But fundamentally with a part timber frame and a part concrete structure. Because of the the massing of that scheme and the engineering constraints, the outcome of of that scheme will inevitably be very different because of that concrete component. So, yes, to some extent, it is all about timber, if you like, Not, not just timber either. There's some really interesting work that web yates engineers who we've worked with on a a number of our schemes are working on in terms of tension stone uh, which again has a a much much better carbon footprint than than concrete does
3: what's interesting is the the carbon and build right because there's been so much focus on carbon in use so whatever it is we want to try and push the envelope in terms of carbon in build because as theo said when you look at a full life cycle analysis actually the vast majority of the carbon comes from the construction bit not the the kind of ongoing operational bit and i think you know we're, we're certainly we're not experts completely in this yet but we're we're on a journey and we continue to kind of push the envelope and and look for best practice wherever it is and we're looking to try and emulate and improve that for, for every project we do
0: you and know. how do you, how do you reckon the pandemic will influence that? Because obviously, you know, that presents sort of slightly different challenges. It's not just a sustainability angle, but people have a lot more focus on health and well being. I mean, does that mean yeah. that for any of your office developments, you'll be looking at doing something slightly slightly different? Have you sort of tweaked any of the designs or incorporated mm-hmm. any new features?
2: Well, as I said before, we uh, particularly in relation to the Lambert scheme, we've we've not felt a need to tweak any of that because it feels fairly, you know, well placed already for the for a post covid environment but certainly what we are looking at on future projects is simple things like walkability so you know a very positive telltale for me looking at central london office buildings at the moment on inspections is typically the agents will walk us around saying let's start at the top floor and walk to the bottom and uh, if the agent says let's take the stairs up to the top floor you know I have a kind of a gut feel that we're looking at the right type of product because clearly high buildings very reliant on Lifting capacity is you know that is one of the real challenges, so we're particularly focused on projects at the minute where we don't face those kind of things, as well as opportunities for projects that give credible opportunity for natural ventilation, openable windows again, not always possible in some central London locations because of air quality issues. so you know that that's very much the kind of telltale signs that we're looking at for the moment of the sort of projects that feel you know, a right fit for the for the immediate post-pandemic world?
3: I think, I think t- yeah, taking a, a kind of broader look as well, from my perspective, what the pandemic has taught us is, I hope, the interconnectedness between human health, you know, nature, climate. And I, I do think whilst it's been obviously a setback for humanity, I hope it is a watershed moment and a turning point where we can have the opportunity to do things differently. And one of those things is... I think a growing awareness that we need genuine systemic change. And I I see that in the food industry. If you look at the food industry, every part of the food process from field to fork emits carbon, you know, from the the ruminant animals in the fields to the slaughterhouses, to the transportation, every element of it is carbon intensive and therefore you can't just fix one element of it. You have to look at it in, in its entirety. Same with plastic. Plastics are a truly systemic problem where we also need to look at government policy to get the taxation right on plastic, and you know we need to look at the whole thing and and with buildings, you know carbon is is so intensive in terms of the construction techniques, but timber, for example, does offer a huge opportunity. However, we again need to take a broader look at every part of the process, and we need the government fully on board with recognising that timber construction does have a role to play in the future. You look at countries like Norway and France, they're absolutely embracing timber frame construction techniques and racing ahead. And in the UK, we can't miss that opportunity. And also the financial markets, the insurance industry, they need to be fully on board as well with these new techniques and be comfortable with them so that developers like us can crack on and build them.
0: Thanks, Richard. One final thing, actually, on that point, really, just in terms of the appetite have you found that it makes sense to go for similar sustainability projects elsewhere out of London as it does in the capital in terms of your projects, say, in Scotland and Ireland? And are you looking at reaching very similar targets there as well?
2: Well, I think there's two points there. First of all, should we be chasing those targets aggressively in whatever location? Yes, absolutely. This isn't or shouldn't be a market driven exercise. The imperative is to do this where, wherever we work. In terms of, I mean, particularly the Belfast work that we're doing, where we've got quite a sizable city centre, multi-phase, multi-building regen project, yes, we are re-looking at that and whether we can drive a sustainable agenda, potentially a timber frame structure agenda further than than we have done previously on that project. I guess the issue that you face outside of London is managing to come to a solution which is financially deliverable as well as deliverable in terms of construction technology but you know again i think it's a very important point that richard made and we are certainly finding in relation to how the paradise project has been picked up that there is a demonstrable appetite from the investment sector for carbon appropriate projects
3: yeah and it's not just building new as well as repurposing old one of my, my f- absolute favourite things that Biowatt has done recently is, is repurposing this historic department store in Glasgow and, what do you call it, Theo, deferb, into sort of co-working space. And I think that use and reuse isn't just for single-use plastics and consumer goods. It's also for buildings as well. And we, we need to get much better. Uh, looking at multi-generational lifespans of buildings that may well be in different guises. And you know they've, they've just turned a department store into, into some co-working space. And I think taking that sort of lateral thinking and applying it to buildings is also really important.
2: I, I, I think it's, it's an excellent point that often refurbs are overlooked with an intensive focus on new build and the technology of new build. But fundamentally, Richard's absolutely right. I mean, the first question you've got to ask yourself looking at a project from a carbon point of view, is why do I need to take down what's already built? The best thing I could possibly do is not demolish and rebuild. Is that viable?
0: If you enjoyed this episode of Intelligence Talks, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please also make sure to share this episode on social media and check out the show notes for more information.